Welcome back to our 15 on the 15th series, our bite-sized book club podcast. Again, my name is Katie LaShawn, and I'm the director of our English as a New Language program here at the University of Notre Dame. I'm here with our two program coordinators, Jenny Dees and Claire Roach. Good morning. We're so glad you've joined us. Um, we are a colleagues and very good friends, and we hope that you're able to, uh, to see that from our conversation. We just want to thank you for spending time with us, and maybe you can share our podcast with uh, one of your friends as well. During the next 15 minutes, we'll be discussing an article written by DeYoung and Harper that addresses a burning question when it comes to teaching English language learners. Is being a good teacher good enough? Jenny will be moderating this discussion for us. Thanks, Katie. I'm honored to be leading our discussion today, and I wanted to begin by saying that I think this article is a great read for all teachers. It really drives home the point that every teacher is a language teacher, and therefore we have to be very deliberate about how we teach language in our schools. Absolutely. I think this hits home for me, especially because there are some real nuances between first language acquisition and second language acquisition. And oftentimes our teachers are just not aware of those nuances. So what I'd love to do today is to kind of um, put on the lens of what the stages of second language acquisition are. At the end of the day, best practice is wonderful and it's beautiful. It just might not be enough for our English language learners, given the fact that second language acquisition um, has some unique characteristics of its own. Mm -hmm. So if you would allow me, I'd like to walk you through the five stages of second language acquisition. So the first stage, um, and before I begin, we do attribute this to Dr. Stephen Krashen is kind of the developer of these five stages. And know that they're not hard and fast, that they're kind of a little bit more fluid. The first stage is the pre-production of the silent period. In this stage, students possess anywhere between zero to 500 words. On average, students spend about anywhere from zero to six months in this stage. They may produce few words and they mainly rely on gestures. So these are really students who are learning English for the very first time in school. And reading between the lines, this is probably a very um, sometimes frightening and overwhelming stage for our learners. They, are, they have a lot to adjust to. Absolutely, we often refer to these as newcomers and in this stage, this is where you're doing anything from um, labeling your room to, you know, being very explicit about what the daily schedule looks like. So that's the pre-production of the silent phase. The second phase is called early production. In this phase, students pr produce about a thousand words, um, an additional six months. So this means anywhere, you know, after that initial silent period, an additional six months. So this may be a student who's been in our school for maybe about a year. They have one word responses and they can use generally some short phrases that they've learned. So Katie, just to clarify, these students are exhibiting a better understanding of the vocabulary, but they may not be able to put things together correctly in terms of grammar or discourse quite yet. Absolutely. Um, if anything, I think they're probably more in a phase where they're just able to identify key vocabulary, but not even necessarily academic vocabulary, just functional vocabulary um, and functional literacy to kind of get through their day to day. The third phase is called speech emergence. This is an additional, it's about 3,000 words would be in their vocabulary, an additional year. So this is potentially a child that's been in school for about two years. Longer sentences, um, they're able to produce, they're able to produce shorter paragraphs, and they have some grammatical errors. Uh, this relates back to our first podcast, but 
depending upon the literacy in their first language, this child may be beginning to develop literacy in their second language. And I would imagine too that in this stage, it's their interpersonal English. So like what we might, between the three of us, refer to as their playground English um, is probably far out exceeding the academic language emergence. So that's something that's just important for teachers to remember, that they're going to learn that playground English before they learn the English of the classroom. Absolutely. And so um, there's another researcher, Dr. Jim Cummins, who actually makes that distinction. He talks about playground English being basic interpersonal communication skills um, and saying that that takes a child on average one to two to one to three years to acquire versus academic language, which is cognitive academic language production we think that takes a child anywhere between five to ten years to acquire. So there's an actual kind of research base to this as well. The fourth stage would be intermediate fluency. In this stage, a student possesses about 6,000 words an additional year. So at this point, we're looking at about three years. We're getting much toward, much more towards that academic language that we've been discussing. In this phase, students are able to, to produce complex writing and they're most likely able to really speak at length, but there's still an underlying hint of language acquisition. You can still tell that they're acquiring the nuances of language. Katie, is it fair to say that this category, the fourth category of intermediate fluency, is where most of our students fall? Absolutely. Um, and you'll see in transitioning to the fifth category, advanced fluency. This is where students possess content academic vocabulary at grade level. This is where it take, we see that seven to 10 year gap. So really students spend a lot of time in this intermediate fluency phase before they really get to what we would consider true advanced fluency in which a student possess, possesses near native fluency and true grade level expectations. And I think so often these kids get um, or can be lost in general education um, classrooms because now for all intensive purposes, they can sound like a fluent and look like a fluent English speaker. And so sometimes teachers forget that they really still need explicit support to help them get to that final stage, which is ultimately our goal. I appreciated that the authors highlighted the four domains of language, listening, speaking, reading, and writing, and that they took time to look at each one and talk about how to bolster that in the classroom. The first area that the authors focused on was oral language, speaking and listening. And they noted very clearly that the progression in first language and second language acquisition is not equitable. And that is, it is very important for teachers not to equate limited language production with intelligence. I think this can be tricky for a teacher when it comes to assessment, right ladies? Mm -hmm. Often assessment conflates content and language. So what can teachers do to use assessment to gain insights into what these students are understanding that doesn't blend the two in a way that becomes detrimental to how we view the child? You know, one thing I think about a lot is that as teachers, I speak and my students listen. So that's two domains right there. It's very heavy on listening and speaking. However, when we go to assess a student, we very much rely on their ability to read and write. Of the four domains, they are certainly not created equal. Generally, we think 
that it's easier to understand a language, then it's easier to speak, then it's easier to read, and finally the most difficult task is to write. But by and large, we assess students on their ability to write written responses and to show content mastery in that manner. So one thing that might be really helpful for us is to revisit our five stages and talk about what a student can do in each of these to show you content mastery. Before we do, I just thought of a good example in a classroom of how a small tweak in instructional practice can go a long way in making sure that our kids get ample opportunities to engage in all four types of languages. This is what made me um, think of it, Katie, is when you talked about the difference between oral, like we talk as teachers and students listen. Um, I just think about how many times we give oral instructions in class and that's it. But imagine if we gave not only oral instruction, but written instructions along with it. So kids are hearing it, but they are also reading. They're listening and they're looking. Um, and that would be just one small example of how, so, so when it comes time for them to take an assessment, they've had much more practice reading instructions and not just listening to them. Absolutely, Sorry. and to be able to have something to refer back to. We know that language, that repetition is a huge part of learning language, and to be able to have written instructions or maybe even potentially checklists that you can refer back to. Um, absolutely. So I took us away from those five stages, but let's get back to them um, because I know we want to give you all some specific examples to show how students might indicate to you that they've mastered learning. Um, and just before we begin, I want to take a minute to point out that understanding these five stages of English emergence doesn't mean that we as teachers need to dumb down our content. Absolutely. Okay, our ELLs still need to learn academic vocabulary. They still need to show us that they're comprehending. But it needs to be done with an understanding of where they are in their English development. So uh, what, if we, what if we take an example of a unit on natural resources? That's a great idea. So let's look at the pre-production of the silent phase. Again, we were saying, remember, that in this stage, students may produce few words or they rely on gestures. This student may not be able to write a one paragraph summary about what resources are and what they entail. However, this child would be able to point, to label, or to circle natural resources. So using an assessment in that manner, I do think you would have a better sense of how well that child is able to master the objective. And looking at another example in early production, so again, this is a subsequent stage, that lasts for an additional six months, about a year total. One word phrases, uh, it's categorized by kind of one or two word responses. In this stage, again, this child is unable to write a paragraph response. What they are able to do is to list, to copy, to group, to name. This would be a great place where you insert some kind of sentence frame, not just a sentence starter, but a sentence frame. For example, blank is a natural resource. Blank is a man-made resource. What do you think? So Katie, you're telling me that teachers should not just copy the test in the back of the chapter, but we should actually be looking at our kid's language ability and saying, what can I do for this child based on what the kid can do in order to accurately look at the content that this end of the chapter test is trying to get at? 
Absolutely. Claire, would you maybe walk us through the next three stages in light of this unit? Sure. So uh, a student in the speech, speech emergent stage may be able to formulate more complex sentences. They might be able to use clauses like water is a natural resource because. Um, in this stage, students are able to use English to explain, to retell, to predict. But uh, I want to spotlight something you mentioned, and that is how important sentence starters and models of correct English are and helping them really get out what it is that they want to be able to say and to show you what it is that they know. Okay, so now let's take a look at a student in the intermediate fluency stage. They're capable of complex writing and speech in English now, such as interpreting and paraphrasing but there still may be some grammatical and spelling errors in English. So I think it's important that we remember that we need to give them lots of robust opportunities to write um, and to speak, but that we also need to remember that their grammar and vocabulary in English is still emerging. Jenny, I know you had some thoughts on maybe how we can tweak rubrics to make this accommodation? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, would this be acceptable? Rather than just having your standard grade level rubric evaluating a paragraph on natural resources that would include maybe 10 points on grammar and spelling, for your English language learner, would you remove that category so that they were not penalized for any spelling or grammatical errors? And that would then allow the teacher to actually look at and grade the content understanding and not get distracted by these areas that could be used to improve writing instruction later in the day. Practically speaking, my instincts are not to remove that part of the rubric altogether because we still want them to be thinking about grammar and structure and spelling as they write, for example. Um, you know, my, my instincts would say keep the English learner and his or her stage in mind um, when you determine what looks like a 10 for him or her. So maybe recognizing that they don't have quite the richness of vocabulary yet, or that they still need to work on one or two tenses or what have you, um, you know, to, to sort of consider progress towards their individual goal when, when it comes to evaluating that particular portion of a rubric. Katie, would you agree? Yeah, I mean, I can see it both ways. I think in the worst case scenario, a child gets a C, an English language learner gets a C on a paper, when all, in all actuality, they were showing you mastery of the content. Mm -hmm. their, their lower grade was simply because of their emerging grammar and spelling and things of that nature. So I think it's there's certainly a balance. And the last stage here, which is advanced fluency, I mean, I don't think we're ever going to get to the point in our schools where we have a child who is at grade level who doesn't make mistakes mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's, you know, this idea of these stages, again, is fluid. I don't think we ever get to the stage where, um, you know, for example, I would consider myself to have advanced fluency and without spell check, I probably wouldn't be sending <laughs> emails. So, I mean, I think that there's still some, some part of, of us always learning. All right. Let's shift our attention to writing. Earlier, Katie mentioned that this is the most challenging of the domains, so let's take it on. Ladies, what can we do in our classrooms? Well, one of the things that I always like to spotlight 
is the idea of stamina, building writing stamina. Because one of the things that we know about English learners, even when they have great teachers, is that they are all too often given fewer opportunities to write in the classroom. And you're gonna have to forgive me, Katie and Jenny, because you've heard me talk about this. I've got four children, um, all four of whom are now playing soccer, but I like to use a soccer analogy uh, to explain why it is that kids need lots of opportunities to write to become good writers. So um, great soccer players, don't just have awesome technical moves. If you can dribble and shoot like Neymar or Messi, that's awesome. But if you don't have the fitness to run the field multiple times over, then your, your skills, quite honestly, don't matter. Um, training on the field and in the classroom have definitely got to have a technical focus but we cannot underestimate the importance of writing frequently and informally because so often if it's not informal, we don't um, assign it as frequently. We don't give kids the same opportunities to do it, to build endurance and ease as they write. So one thing that I, I would challenge all teachers of English learners to think about is how often am I giving my kids opportunities to write? Is it all formal structure opportunities, structured opportunities, or do I give them a multitude of opportunities during the day and at homework to write freely, to write informally, meaning I'm not going over it with a red pen, right? But to get them to build up that muscle strength, to get them to, to stop um, sighing like, oh, I have to write because they write so often it no longer hurts to write. Claire, I'm so glad that you got to weave in soccer there <laughs> <laughs> and that you challenged our teachers to think about writing so intentionally and to bolster that in our classrooms. Katie, what more could you add to this discussion? I mean, I think there's additionally an intentionality in writing in different subjects. So we know that different content areas actually ask different writing of our students. So just being able to put on that hat. So for example, in language arts, writing might include blogs, debates, poetry, narratives. Whereas in math, writing might include explanations, graphs, proofs. You know, science might include field notes, arguments, observations, instructions. Uh, social studies might include primary sources, debates, biographies, timelines. So beginning to understand that writing takes on a different shape in each of our subjects. Um, in order to do this, we're gonna play a fun little game. Um, we have our technical crew here with us uh, who we have graciously bribed with uh, sweets to <laughs> help us in our production and to participate in our game today. Uh, so this is what our game looks like. We're gonna all close our eyes and think about a peony. A peony is the state flower of Indiana. Claire, I'm gonna give you 10 seconds. I would like for you to describe peony as if you were an artist. Begin. A beautiful peony bush has gentle pink flowers with um, full circles in the middle of those <laughs> flowers. There's lots of uh, hues of green and um, there is rich bloom. There are rich blooms. Perfect. Um, as you can tell, Claire has elicited a certain type of language. Jenny, I'm going to ask you to describe a peony as if you were a botanist. You may begin. Well, I wish I knew the full Latin name, but I don't. If I did, I would include that. Um, the petals of the flower are often pink or white. The bush itself can grow to be about two to three feet in height. 
the leaves are larger in size. Um, the center of the flower contains a large amount of pollen. And it has a symbiotic relationship with ants. <laughs> well done, Jenny. <laughs> Absolutely. Great job. Uh, Tim or Steve, who would like to describe this as if you were an artist? Did I already say that? A yeah. poet. A poet. Well, I have to admit, I, I've never seen, I might have seen a peony, but I don't know what it is. And so a quick Google search <laughs> is telling me that um, they are, uh, I would describe them as little little uh, truffled uh, pink pink tutus of, of flower. Um, and I'm seeing some images here where I can imagine a, a master gardener, you know, clipping the stems and placing them in a nice vase uh, for display for uh, on the dining room table. And um, they look very, uh, they have a, a nice round shape to them um, with, with some nice green accents uh, flowing out from, from in between each little bulb. I guess that was beautiful. You are beautiful it. as a poet. <laughs> um, I wish you could see Tim's hand movements, hand gestures, <laughs> because we do this activity very frequently uh, with schools, and you just notice that the hand gestures come out whenever the poet uh, starts speaking. So the whole point here is that different genres possess different language, and it's really important for us to recognize that in our students, and especially when we're asking them to write. So today we would just like to wrap up um, by obviously thanking you for coming and we're really hopeful that you took something away in regard to the stages of language acquisition, um, what our students can do at each stage, and maybe ways to get them to write more in our classroom. Thank you again for joining us today. You, might you may find out more information about our English as a New Language program at our website, enl.nd.edu. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you and we look forward to having you join us next month. Thank you very much. Have a great day.